welcome back to the Coffee and Anti-Racism podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, you will see I'm joined by someone. And if you're just listening, I'm just letting you know that's what's going on. So I am joined by Bella Velasquez Publes, who is a leadership coach amongst other wonderful things. And we're going to have a chat today, all things racial equity, DEI. And, you know, I was saying when we had our initial chat that I felt as though um, the states are far way ahead of us in terms of the UK, in the way ahead of the UK with regards to DEI work, diversity, equity and inclusion. So we're going to chat about what um, what Becca's experience is. And yeah, we're just going to talk through all of this. So firstly, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Rebecca. And this is, um, I'm ready to chop it up. Like, let's get to it. I'm yeah, ready. Let, let's get, let's get, let's get straight <laughs> into it. Okay. So actually, I think it'd be useful for people to know where exactly what you're speaking from today. Yeah. So I am in the United States and I live in Michigan. I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and now I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is between um, Chicago and Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are um, in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my, you know, my background is I'm Puerto Rican and Mexican. Mm-hmm. And um, my, you know, my parents, um, my mom was her first generation born here. My father was born in Puerto Rico. And so mm-hmm. We were raised in Detroit in a really diverse neighborhood. Mm. Um, and so um, when I moved to Grand Rapids, it was very much less diverse. Right. Um, okay. And so w- when you moved, was that as an adult? And, and yeah. what impact did that have on you? I was a young professional and mm. I came from Detroit where I worked with, um, and my background is in nonprofit. So I've done 20 years building organizations, leaders, and movements in the nonprofit sector um, mm. towards racial equity and social justice. And so when I came to Grand Rapids, it was um, very different, mm. right? Um, it was a predominantly white uh, culture, and I came from a predominantly Black and um, Brown um, leaders and organizations. Can you just explain what that feels like? Because often that's something we try and communicate to to white people who don't understand what it feels like to be in a white space as an ethnic minority. What did that feel like for you as you realize, okay, this is going to be it. I'm going to have to deal with this and this is how I feel. Yeah. Um, the feeling of, um, first of all, no one understanding um, you as a human being or, or, or similar experiences. Oh. Um, you know, if I'm speaking Spanish to my mom or my mother-in-law on the phone, it is, it is because that is the comfortable language for them. Mm. Um, and you not accepting that or looking at me sideways because I'm not speaking English. I'm not talking about you. We're mm. talking about what we're going to have for dinner <laughs> later. And if I need to stop yeah. at the school on the way home, yeah. they yeah. need, you know, what they need from me. Yeah. And so I think just something that small mm-hmm. of not being able to show up as your authentic self, yeah. um, not, you know, we call it masking and we call it like being, um, changing your identity when you're yeah. walking. We call so it like, co- covering or assimilating. And coach switching, right? Yeah, Apologies. that too. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do you navigate those spaces? Mm. Um, and and I think, you know, one thing I want to also name is that, yes, it, you know, you experience it in different ways. And, um, and that was really difficult for me because, because it's just difficult. It's exhausting. It is. 
Yeah, because if you can't show up as your authentic self, you're constantly having to think about your behavior, about what you say, about what you look like, about how you speak to people who are like you. It's work, you know? So so is is that part of the reason why you came to work um, in the era of, of, of racism or racial and e- racial equity? Yeah, I think um, social justice has always been something that I've been passionate about. It's always yeah. been something that is, you know, in my DNA, right? Like I think, you know, my mom marched with the farm workers and, you know, this was just the culture that we kind of mm. grew up in. Mm. And so for me, it made sense. And as I navigated as a young professional and I, you know, for me, I really have a soft spot in my heart for professionals, um, you know, uh, black and brown professionals that are navigating, um, especially first generation, navigating places like university and mm. different type of careers where there's yeah. no one there who's been there before them to give them the cheat codes, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I didn't know, you know, if I didn't have a strong black woman mentoring me young in my profession, mm. I, I, there's a lot of things that I would have missed. And there mm. was a lot in which I think I could have been harmed even more than so I give, was give us some examples so people understand what you're talking about yeah. if they don't yeah mm-hmm. um you know one of the things is I remember when I first went to probably like my my I went to work for a large organization um and it was led by women of color and it was just like beautiful like it was just now looking back what a, how fortunate was I to have like almost all my bosses be black women yeah in that space mm. and what a beautiful place and so for me growing up in the city of Detroit and um being surrounded by um Latinx and black black folks my whole life it, mm. it just felt natural mm-hmm. and I remember one day I walked into work and it was one of my first days and Pat was her name and she's amazing mm. um and she was just like hey listen I'm gonna keep it 100 with you mm-hmm if we can have a good relationship, then I'm going to have your back, mm. but I'm not going to have your back as you're navigating professionally. All right. So when you're, wow. everyone's not going to have your back, she's like, yeah. I recommend you here because I know who you are and what you can do, mm. but we have to have, be have honest. We have to be honest with one another. If you're hitting something or you didn't do something like we got to be honest, because there's only two ways that you are going, um, that this relationship is not going to work mm. and that buy and don't and cover something up. Or if there's something that's out of either one of our control, right? And, you know, like grandpa, wow. name you, and, yeah. and I remember walking away like, what an honest conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never again, and 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 from then on, I I really until recent years was managing um, and supervised by white women mm-hmm. or white men, mm-hmm. um, and I remember thinking back and reflecting on that and saying, no other supervisor has ever been as clear, concise, straightforward and and telling me, this is how you're going to have to navigate this because I'm telling you straight up how it's going to be. So, you know, on that point, do you not, do you think that's something, a role that a white person could take on? Can they learn to be an ally and to have an ethnic minority's back in that way? Or is that only the job or the, you know, the, yeah. Is that only the job of an ethnic minority person? I think the best way for white folks to be allies, mm-hmm. and I have had them in my life, um, is to show up and share power and privilege. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Give yeah. you 
I, I had a colleague who like um, invited me to uh, write an op-ed around um, healthcare disparities and we were bringing a national speaker come in and all these type of things. And it was a white man and mm-hmm. he brought me to the space. We wrote this op-ed and then someone had to do the intro. Mm-hmm. Well, it was his corporation and his, his health system that was actually sponsoring it. So naturally it would be him to do mm-hmm. the intro of this natural national speaker coming into our community. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I'm not doing the intro. You're doing the intro. Wow. I said, what? <laughs> and he's like, no, people yeah. have to hear your voice and hear what you have to say. Yeah. And you need to be up there introducing this conversation. Not me. Right. They right. Like white man saying this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And I think people are afraid to give up their power. They, you know, you have some people who will never get up, give it up no matter what. But there are some people who recognize the problems, but perhaps are scared of the implications of sharing that power. You know, how do you speak to those people? I have found, and you know, we work in workplaces that are hierarchies, right? So mm. everyone, wherever you are, has a position of power at some point, right? Like mm. you have decision making power, you have influence or what have you. And one thing as a leader that I've learned, and I try to share this with um, all leaders, especially um, in nonprofit where it's like predominantly white folks leading mm. work that, mm. is, that are mm-hmm. predominantly serving black and brown folks, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> um. And so for me, what I often say is like, it is a liberating thing to dismantle and give and give even perceived power mm. to mm. others, give mm. others the autonomy mm. and the choice to do their work, mm-hmm. to do what you, what they're charged to do in service of your mission, of your company, of your business or whatever it might be. Mm. And that looks like oftentimes when um, black and brown folks are in workplaces, our work is analyzed in a different way. We need yep. to say credentials to say that I am qualified to say mm-hmm. what I say. I got to wear these kitten heels instead of these Chuck Taylors that are going to make me more comfortable as I'm giving you a presentation. Mm-hmm. That's my, my hoops need to be smaller. Like, let's look at why we hire people to be in the positions that they are and trust them to do the work. You know, it, it's just that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing at the moment, as I said, we're behind the states in terms of this um, education, in terms of racism in particular, or discrimination in general. But I think it's the microaggressions that a lot of people don't understand what they look like. Often when we run sessions on microaggressions, what we're asked time and time again, can you give me more examples, please? Because people don't get it. And, you know, and I I keep going back to, you know, what the definition is. I say, look, if you understand what a microaggression is, you know, it's it's words, it's actions that communicate that ethnic minorities are invisible, they're unwelcome, they're incapable of performing well. Remember those things. And so when you're saying things that do those things, stop it, reflect on it, you know. And it's just that. It's just that. Hey, I know you're enjoying the podcast episode, but I just want to quickly come in and say, look, if you're an organization that needs anti-racism training for your organization because your staff are lacking in a racial literacy, they don't have the words, they get stuck when talking about racism, they're, they want to be able to deal with incidents, but they're not sure how to, then check out our Time to Talk About Race online CPD accredited course at strawberrywords.co.uk, okay? We can train from 10 to 10,000 but get in touch today at admin 
at strawberrywords.co.uk. Now back to the episode. It's just that, you know, I was in, I did health equity work for a number of years. And I remember I was in a meeting with some, um, a, you, I got some great examples. I was in a meeting with some healthcare providers and um, I'm very passionate about health equity. I'm very passionate about racial, <laughs> racial equity. Mm. And one of the, um, one of the providers looked at me and I have known this provider for a number of years and had a really great relationship with them. And they said, oh, that's Becca's hot Latina temper. Oh, wow. And I was paralyzed in the moment and I was embarrassed and I was shamed. And I know their intent wasn't to do any of those things because they actually cared about me as a human being. Yeah. But all these other folks in this room do not know me like that. That's right. You don't have the permission to use my ethnicity against me and weaponize it because then others will do it as well. And although you did not intend to use it as a weapon, others saw it that way. Mm. And so my voice is mitigated. Mm -hmm. My my reputation is like, now I'm going to walk into this room as the hot Latina anytime I say anything. And that is not okay. And then I had to have a really hard conversation after that. And how did that conversation go? I mean, it was, I had practiced it. When you do social, when you do racial equity work, like you're practicing the conversation yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, And so it went, well, you know, I was just like, hey, you can't do that. You can't say like, that's not okay. This is what this looks like to others. So did they, you they, get, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. They don't know that we're in relationship. And that yeah. we've been working for years on these projects together. Mm. Yeah. So, so we talk about managing difficult conversations around addressing microaggressions. And we know that often we call them the five D's and don't ask me to remember to recall them every single one. But like, you know, what uh, white people often do will defend or deny or deflect or, you know, you know justify all that sort of downplay um, the situation just so that the heat is taken off them. So I, this is why I was asking. I'm like, you know, did you get any of that, or was your colleague receptive yeah, to what you were saying? For sure, for sure. And then I had to talk through that too. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't need a response. I need you to acknowledge what you did right. and how you be perceived by others. I have a colleague, and she always says this thing, and she, she's like, just because you stepped on my foot and said you're sorry doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That's right. I keep trying to say that. So again, it goes back to impact Trump's intention. It doesn't matter how well intended a statement or action was. It's about the impact, you know, because people will often say things like, well, I can't help it if they're offended, but you did something in the first place. <laughs> you know? How do you mitigate that harm? All I need you to say, that's not what I meant. I am, I'm apologize. I hear you. Yeah. And thank you being in this space I had another colleague who said to me one time when I had to call them same thing similar thing mm. and they were like thank you for helping me grow yeah thank you for caring enough to actually have the conversation and helping right. me to grow right and I, I you know so and I think that's the the spirit in which I feel it should be taken in because quite often like I say people jump to defense and therefore causing further harm through microaggressions um well actually they're being given a really valuable learning point there because you know one of the biggest fears for i keep saying this for a lot of white people is that i'm going to be called racist they don't want that right but what they're not understanding is through microaggressions ethnic minorities are probably saying that anyway so when someone teaches you oh my gosh 
that is so valuable. You know, anyway, look, time's going on and I want to just get on and get some of my questions in. So um, when we spoke, you spoke about um, equity drinks. I thought that was a fantastic concept. Please tell us about equity drinks. Yeah. So um, when I came and I moved to West Michigan and to Grand Rapids, one of the things that I really struggled with is like a lot of people weren't talking about equity and racial equity specifically. And I was in a health equity space at the time and I had a colleague and um, one day we were at this training um, um, with uh, this group called the National Equity Project. And they're just amazing. They're dope. Like they are an amazing um, resource for me early on in my in my journey. And um, we're at this training and we're the only ones in health. So we started talking and we started like, you know, collaborating. And then we met outside of there and it's a white man. He's like, how do like, how do we start having these conversations so that we're not like booed out of rooms and that people can hear it and that like, it's, it's easier to digest and that we can start to normalize. Like, let's just have the conversation. Like, mm. it's not, up. let's mm. practice. Where can we practice this? Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're like brainstorming and he's just like, well, you know, on the golf course and the United States on the golf courses or like business deals are made. Same they say, yeah. like you have drinks and everything's on a, sh a handshake or whatever. Mm -hmm. No, because I don't roll like that, but <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah. Like, how do we create that space? And he's, and we were just so happened to be having beers. And I was like, what if we invited a whole bunch of folks together to have some beers and talk about racial equity? Mm. And that's where equity drinks came from. And from there, we had like, we invited everybody we knew from like VPs of health systems to like our neighbors to, um, you know, city governments, the county mm -hmm. government, the health mm -hmm. department. And we're there and it went from like five to seven on like the second or third Thursday of the month. And every time we would come in, we'd either have a speaker or we'd have like, everyone's having drinks. It's at a bar. Um, so can I ask a question here? So why did they come? Like, because often, you know, I keep saying like, nobody wants to do racial um, equity training or anything like that. It's usually something that they're made to do or there's been a problem, so we have to do it. So what made people want to come? I think curiosity. Mm. I think I think people really do want to have the conversation, but they might be scared or there's yeah. not condition yeah. for it and we're like we're just having drinks like there is no like we're not putting on any airs here mm. like let's just have a conversation about how these things show up and manifest mm. themselves in our community mm. and, in our life. and um and here we are and equity drinks is no longer in existence because we're all talking about it we don't that's need amazing. That that's you know amazing. hope that like the movements that you make and the conversations that you have generate spaces so that we normalize these conversations. They become, and I don't mean, and I said normalize a couple of times and I want to be clear. Mm. I don't mean normalize in a way where it is no longer important to have the conversation. Yeah. yeah. But that you can talk about it when things come up. You have an ability to have a right. conversation right. without people tuning you out and like disregarding you. Yeah. So you're racially literate. You're Thank racially you. literate. You can engage and discuss yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you you built your racial literacy, so fantastic. Now, okay, I'm I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to quickly jump to my most important question, which is this: you know, given all of your experience, in fact, yeah, there's two things. So, given all of your your experience, what one message would you have for organizations that have 
you know, they've seen the problems, they realize something needs to be done, there's motivation for something to be done with regards to racial equity, but they're not quite sure how they're going to handle this huge task. What one message would you have for them as they go along their anti-racism journey? Just one, Rebecca, just one. I know. Um, this is big. Mm. And sometimes you're just going to be planting seeds and or tilling the soil. Mm -hmm. Tell them again. Yes. You might just be tilling the soil for the next leaders to come to plant the mm -hmm. seeds. We did not get here overnight. We're not going to get here with a magic wand. That's so stop right. putting statements out that you know are not true. Mm. It's going to be a cost to every organization to lean into this work in a very meaningful way. Yes. There is a cost to doing this work because yeah. the systems tell you, no, mm -mm, they were mm -hmm. set up to resist. Yes. And so you're going to be meaningful in your work. Be clear to your teams what you are able to do. Yes. And don't fake it. Yes. Just be honest and transparent. Yes. And we have to start with microaggressions and we have to start with culture building and just seeing each other as human beings. Mm -hmm. Start there, but don't yes. let that be the end. That's right. Yeah, because it's not a project that you can just finish. <laughs> not until everybody's racially literate and we're having those conversations, all able to have those conversations. And it's not a work plan. This is not a strategic plan that you're going to get done in three years, five years, yeah. 10 years. This is not business as usual. Yeah. This is something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you have to build the muscle as an organization and the individuals in the organizations need to build the muscle mm -hmm. to be able to do this work and live it out every day. That's right. That's right. You don't build a six pack in a session. <laughs> it's not a transaction. It's a transformation. Yeah. It's not that's a right. The transformation. It's not. Well, say that again. It's not. Oh, that's a tweet. It's not a transaction. It's a transformation. It's a transformation. Yeah. Transformation. Love that. So final question. Tell us. Tell us more about your work, where people can find you online and, and so on. Go for it. Um, well, thank you so much. I'm actually in a transition. So I'm going to be able to announce this here for the first time. And as we talked, I'm going into like leadership coaching and development. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Mm. And um, Becca Velasquez Pubas, you can find me there. And the, the details will be on our website. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple, just go to the strawberrywords.co.uk website to see all this information. Thanks. Yeah. I'll actually, then I'll just show you, share you my links to my webpage. If you want to book a discovery or a thought partner or anything like that. And also, um, um, uh, you can email me at Becca at the hyphen liberated hyphen leader. Okay. And so again, all of that can be found on the strawberrywords.co.uk website via the blog and, um, podcast uh, tab. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your wealth of information. I'm you know, I'm, I'm honored, to, honored to be speaking with you. And I feel like um, we haven't even scratched the surface in this conversation. There's so much to talk about. But I find that because some people have never engaged in this topic, I think even what we've spoken about will be valuable. So I just, yeah, I, I thank you so much for sharing. And, and I wish you all the best on your new journey. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great one. And let me know if you need anything. I'd love to talk and chat it up again. Thank you. Thank you.